This is Robbie Herrera, and you're listening to the Fulham Focus Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Fulham Focus Podcast. My name's Matt Boisclair, and I hope you've all got over last weekend's latest shit show, as I'm afraid we've got to do it all again on Monday afternoon in what some might call a relegation six-pointer against Slaven Village's West Bromwich Albion the lofty heights of getting six points this season felt at all realistic at this point. We're here to try and find some positives though as we look ahead to the game. The clocks have gone back, the nights have drawn in and the temperature's dropping. And just when you think that things can't get any worse, I deliver the news to you that Baldo's on the show for the second time this week. He's joined by the man with the stats, Moncton FC's number one, Matt Stasoata. Plus, Morgs will be with me in a little while for an in-focused chat about the Fulham career of Super Jeff Horsfield. So let's get right on with it. Fulham. Well, lads, last season it was very much a case of after you, no, after you, when it came to who was going to get the points to secure automatic promotion. Brentford choked at the key moment when it was in their hands away at Stoke. Fulham never tried to win the game at the Hawthorns. It would really have laid down our intent to win automatic promotion. And in the end, on the last day of the season, neither Fulham, Brentford or West Brom won, which meant West Brom scraped over the line, uh, which was a complete damp squib. Both sides are still yet to win this season, although West Brom have got three points from their six games so far compared to our one draw from the same amount of games. Stato, who's improved their side more since we met last in July, Fulham or West Brom? That's quite an interesting question, actually. Um, if you look at us, well, if, on paper, if you look at it, you could say that we've improved our squad most. We've signed 10 players, 10 good players, compared to West Brom, who they didn't really make that many improvements at all. Most of the signings that they made um, were just the loan signings that they had last season and turned them into permanence. And then they added a few extra signings here and there, like Carl and Grant, uh, Ivanovic. But, you know, it's it's we're both in the same position, so you know it's kind of hard to say who actually has improved the most. Um, some could say that Westbourne were doing what we should have done in that keeping faith in the team that got us up and going with that. But as that's showing, it's not really any improvement on what we've done so far. So it's it's a, it's a, it's a weird one. We did try that, though, didn't we, against Arsenal on the opening day, and that went well. <laughs> yeah, well, it was well for the first. Five minutes or so. It was it was a good five minutes. You know, that's the last time I felt happy as a Fulham fan, I think. Best five minutes uh, of the season. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, and obviously, you know, that's Arsenal to top six team. It's kind of hard to judge that throughout a whole season, giving them just one game was a bit harsh in the grand scheme of things. But hey, that's where we are now. So it is what it is. All right, mate. And how about you, Baldo? Who's, who's improved their side more, West Brom or Fulham? I... I think it's us, although it's one of these on paper we've improved more than them because it's certainly as hell isn't showing anything based on what we've seen the first couple of weeks. You know, touching what Matt Hard said, you know, most of the deals was were you know were turning their permanence or turning their loan deals into permanence, uh, the likes of Callum Robinson and Grady Dean Garner as well. Um, getting Carlin Grant, I think, was a very smart move, but over the course of it, I think we probably did just about enough. As I it's minimal. It's like we got a 7.1 in the transfer window and they got a 7 out of 10 sort of thing. It's very marginal, but I think I'd give it to us just. I think the fact that they signed David Button just shows you how bad a, bad a window they had, though. Oh, God, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, arguably neither of these two squads are sufficient for Premier League survival. How can we be the best of the worst on Monday night? And Stato, what team would you pick to deliver our first three points of the season? Uh, to be the best of the worst, uh, it's, it's dire that we're already here at this position seven games in. But hey, I think uh, team-wise, I think Scott needs to look back at the game that we played well in, which is the Sheffield United game. You know What works well there? That we had the midfield three of Kearney, Angisa and Loftus-Cheek. Go back to that. Don't play Loftus-Cheek out wide on the right and don't restrict Frank by playing him in this weird defensive right, midfield position. Go back to that midfield three that worked so well. Have a uh, keep the same back four. Consistency is key here because 
looking at the face of it, in six games, we've played five different defensive combinations, six different midfield combinations, and six different attacking combinations. There's no, there's no consistency. There's no, you know, how are we going to get results if it's just a different team each week? So stick with the same defence that we had for the last two weeks now. Uh, Attack-wise, you have Mitro, you have Lukman, they're given, they're, they're, the, they're the starters. And then it's that right mid-spot, which is kind of that weak position that we have at the moment. Obviously, Cavalero had an awful game the other week. Whether he's still injured, we don't know. Kamara's on a red card, for better or worse. Um, so that kind of leaves two options, in my opinion. That's either Cabano or Bobby Decadova-Reed. Again, Cabano didn't make the bench last week, so I don't know if he's injured or not. He could be fit, who knows? Um, and if that is the case, then it's going to have to be Reed, I think. And people may not like him. He may be a championship player at best, but he's the best we've got in that position at the moment, I think. Yeah, okay. Um I I I'm with you in in that I, I really think that we should be playing our, our best players in their best positions. You know, Angisa sitting in front of the defense, almost box to box, Lookman on the left. In, instead of just shoehorning these players in, and, and even Kearney, when he played against Sheffield United, looked good in front of in front of the back four as well. So again, keep him there and and stop messing around with it, stop tinkering. And I think I mentioned uh, a couple of shows ago that it almost seems like Scott Parker's got a different game plan, a different formation, and a different team planned for for each opposition that we that we face. Um, and it's just not working. It's clearly not working because we haven't won yet this season. So I, I, I agree with you that consistency is key. Um, one thing that I was going to ask you, you mentioned about Kamara and the red card there. And we we saw the incident that led to his red card against Crystal Palace at the weekend. And then there was the incident that led to Dina being sent off for Everton um, away at Southampton. And that got a lot of national press. But for me, the the incidents weren't that dissimilar yet Dinia's been uh Dinia appealed and got his ban reduced to one game which means that he'll play against us in in a few weeks time um for Everton and we haven't even bothered appealing I don't know whether that's tactical and just an an excuse to leave Kamara out or it just seems bizarre that it, it seems one rule for one and one rule for another in this instance to me what do you think Stasso um I'll be honest I don't really care and what I mean by that is Digne is a key player for Everton. He's their main left back. He produces many assists and goals. Kamara, I don't really care if he plays or not. He's not really that good. He he doesn't provide much to the team, whether it's him playing or Cavalero or Cabano. It makes no real difference. He's not a huge loss. So meh. Like if we have him, we have him. If we yeah. don't, then you know it's not that big of a deal in my opinion. Fair enough. All right, Baldo, I'm going to come across to you then and get your lineup uh, suggestion, let's call it, for, for Monday night. Um, I don't really think it's a lineup suggestion, you know, touching on what um, Stato said earlier. I think what we need more than anything is a, is a mentality change. Because whilst you say that, you know, all the different different systems and uh, personnel haven't working, I think it's a, you know, the way we play is the, is the thing that isn't working. And at this stage, do we really have anything to lose at this stage? We just need to be far more attacking more than any, more than anything. You know, enough of the, we've I know we've been saying this for ages with Scott Parker, but enough of you know the passing the ball around and all that sort of stuff. And let's just go, let's just attack teams. we may look we may lose some games, but the chances are we're gonna win some games as well. If you go back to the West Brom game, you know, after lockdown, the reason we didn't get a win that day was because we just sat back and, you know, let the draw play out, which at the end cost us automatic promotion. We got there in the end, but it was a bit of, but it was a bit of a downturn. So I agree with what Stato said in terms of lineup and you know, personnel and everything. But I just think it needs to be more of a, a, a attacking uh, mentality that's what is what we need right now, rather than rather than trying to tinker and change anything, get a settled side, but let's go for it a little bit more. I agree with that. And I, I... Frenchie, you made a really good point earlier about how we kind of we react to what other teams do. So what we need to be doing, we need to be reacting. No, 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 we don't need to be reacting to what other teams do. We need to be having our own game plan. We need, we need to be playing in a certain way. We need to be attacking more um, enthusiastically. And if that doesn't work, if the team is playing better than us, then yes, 
we then react to that. But approaching games by kind of trying to combat what other teams are doing, it's not working. And chopping and changing is a part of that. And that needs to change. And like you said, Baldo, we need to have that mentality of approaching games that we're going to win and we're going to go ahead and attack. Yeah, it's one of these. It's one of these phrases. In I know it's American sports. I don't know if it's quite many. It's being proactive rather than being reactive. You know exactly. I know. I know. I know. Frenchy says that we set up with a different game plan for every team that we play. That's probably fine if you are, you know, a quote-unquote bigger team in the league, and you know, and you know, you're going to win. Like Man City can tinker their game plan for when they play Arsenal to when they play Burnley. But for us, the underdogs in what's probably going to be most games this season. I don't think it quite works for us. We need to we need to have that settled mentality and hope and hope that it gets us through. You know, go back to Blackpool when they went down with I think they had something like forty it was more than forty points when they went down in two thousand eleven. No, they, it, it, it wasn't quite, was it? But I remember it was the final day against United that yeah, they just about that, went yeah. down. Yeah, yeah, but the fact they lasted that long by mm. but the way they played was just attacking every week. And Holloway mm. said we're gonna lose some games but at least we're going to go down, you know, fighting, and you know, arguably one of the better teams that ever went down was was that team. So hopefully, you know, hopefully we stay up. But that's that's the sort of thing I'm going on about. I think that's probably the main difference between us and West Brom at the moment. West Brom have kind of approached the Premier League by sticking to what they played last season in the Championship. You know, they still got the same players, they still play roughly the same system, and although they've only got two points more, something great, they're still getting good draws against Chelsea, against Burnley. Uh, they got a good draw against Brighton on Monday, and that's just by playing their game rather than trying to combat the opposition. And that's kind of the main difference between us and them at the moment. All right. Well, there'll be more of this after this in focus chat I had with Morgs recently about Fulham legend and ex West Bromwich Albion striker Jeff Horsfield. Fulham. Right, yes, it's the latest in our player focus chats this week. It's Jeff Horsfield. I've got Morgs with me. Morgs, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm also well. Very well, thanks. Let's get into it then. So, back in the days when there weren't proper transfer windows, Kevin Keegan stole swashbuckling centre forward and former hoddie, Super Jeff Horsfield from Halifax Town, where he'd scored 46 goals in 74 games. And we paid a bargain, £350,000 for him. And he took to playing in Division 2 like a duck to water. What do you remember about that time and the signing of Jeff in particular? Well, obviously, that particular season, I mean, that's probably, for those that remember, uh, it's probably one of the, you know, alongside the Mickey Adams season two years before, it's one of our favourite seasons. Those, you know, three out of six seasons, or sorry, three out of five seasons going up to the Premier League were some of the most enjoyable football that fans can remember. I, I remember when we were, being linked to Horsefield, it was it was quite weird because he was so unglamorous compared to so many of the other signings that we were bringing on board at the time. And so I think, you know, certainly I thought it was like, oh, OK, so we're buying him. You know, would it be a squad player? You know, he got you know a good rep from, you know, playing at uh, Halifax. And obviously this was in the time pre-YouTube. So I couldn't just look him up and see what, you know, what his goals were like. But then he, uh, yeah. He um, you know, came onto the scene and you said like he was a duck to water, uh, which is quite appropriate for his first game, I guess. Yeah, that absolutely soaking wet game against Walsall. Um, he took just 11 minutes to score his first goal for the club in that match. And I'd forgotten, actually, Walsall actually finished second that season behind us, although quite some way behind us. Um, but yeah, he came off the bench. We're already 3-1 up and um, and he scored. What do you remember about the goal, apart from being soaking wet? Well, yeah, I was. Uh, I, I remember I'd been in the first half. I'd been sitting in the Riverside stand where I was sitting at the time, and uh, what was it? I must have been thirteen, fourteen, I guess. And just going into the hammy end for the second half, and it just absolutely teeming down. And he, I remember him getting the ball near the halfway line, or I assume it was near the halfway line, um, and him just weaving his way through, like you know, like the original Ronaldo. You know, he was he seemed so nimble for someone so I think chunky's harsh, but he was a big lad. And him just smashing in the goal. It was like, huh, okay. This is this this is a serious player. We've got him for a bargain compared to a lot of our signings. And you know, be interesting to see what he does from now. 
What you've got to remember about him is that he was a part-time footballer before he signed for us. He was a builder whilst playing for Halifax. And he was built like a builder. Yeah. Um, and for he, the, he, he did it. Strong. Yeah. He, he did have finesse about him, but defenders just bounced off him. And where defenders didn't bounce off him, he made sure they bounced off him. And you're right. He, he went through the defenders, the Walsall defenders, like they weren't there. And the finish was superb as well. It was just a little dink over the keeper into the bottom corner. Yeah. And it was everything about that seemed odd because A, he came into the pitch and you see him not lumbering on because he was quite, you know, quick in his own way. But the way he got, they worked his way, for, you know, his determination, you could clearly see he was up for it. He'd made this big transfer, but he also wasn't phased by it because he's a northern lad from Halifax and you know he wasn't he just he would just got on with the job and nothing was going to stop him from scoring and yeah ran through that defense and then a nice cheeky delicate chip of a finish it was like that was so uh, you know unreflective of what he looked like yeah when he when he started scoring he really did hit a purple patch he was quickly nicknamed the horse which is quite an obvious nickname but everything he touched just seemed to fly into the back of the net prompting the chant who the fuck is alan shearer and the horse goes marching on then when it became clear that kevin keegan was going to leave at the end of the season to manage the england team horsefield for england took over he was a prolific striker that i'd not seen the like of before at fulham in my years certainly not that 1998-99 Division 2 title winning side was fantastic, but after he got himself into the team, he was absolutely unplayable, wasn't he? Yeah, and I kind of, you know, you do wonder, I mean, the fact is, anyone who went into that team, unless you're not, you know, Eddie Johnson or something like that, you were going to score goals <laughs> in, in that team because we were such an attacking side. And Keegan teams didn't play for that 1-0 win. They played for that 5-4 win. And so anyone who was, you know, any striker who was fortunate enough to play in a Keegan side was bound to get goals if, you know, they were efficient enough. And he was. And I remember obviously going into the sort of the, those that last game against Preston. And it was such a weird atmosphere because we had absolutely stormed that league. And I, I can't remember if he was playing or not because obviously Moody got his hat trick in it. But well, Moody came of, on at half time. Yeah. And... He uh, obviously the Horsfield for England chance was sort of going on still, but it was more the fact that we actually believed that he was going to get an England cap hmm. because obviously this was pre Twitter and everything like that. But the the rumours were, and I think obviously you know some of the press had picked up on whether he could actually get an England cap because of Keegan and the fact that he was banging them in. But unfortunately, it never quite sort of panned out like that. But he uh, he certainly earned his stripes in Division 2 have it, you know, that quickly. He did. And you think about the way we used to play. You talk about the Kevin Keegan philosophy of winning the game 5-4 rather than 1-0, and it was attacking football at his best and entertainment as well. We did play a five-man defence, but it was very much with Steve Finnan and Rufus Brevitt as those attacking wing-backs. And then the three across the back were either Kit Simons, Chris Coleman and Simon Morgan – or late, later that season, Philippe Albert as well, who joined online. Oh, um, that's a different story, but I love that guy. Yeah, it was a, it was an incredible yeah. team. It really was. But Jeff Horsfield was, you know, not necessarily the biggest name in the in the side or the most glamorous of footballers, but he was super effective at that level. But do we think, you know, perhaps that actually worked in our favour because we had so many undivision two players? that having a player who was a little bit more rough and ready actually played to our strengths because it allowed, you know, we had this glamorous team said, but having someone of, you know, you know, Jeff's style, we actually allowed us to sort of, you know, compete with some of these teams who were, you know, a bit just old school, for want of a better term. Well, he was up front with Barry Hales as well for a lot of the time, wasn't he? And Barry Hales, once he'd hit his form, um, it, he he was excellent as well. And yeah. he, he, we'll, we'll do a Barry, Barry Hales in focus, I'm, I'm sure, at some point. Um, but he took, he took a little bit of time to, to hit, his, hit his form um, and find his feet. But 
they were two very different players because Barry Hales was very quick, but also very strong. But they complemented yeah. each other as well. And there were so many goals between the two of them. It was it was unreal. Plus then we had Pesh as well, who was who was playing second fiddle to the pair of them, but also had plenty of goals in him as well. And, and you've said, you know, obviously uh, Moody, I think, had been injured or wasn't playing much in that season towards the end. But for a front line, that front four... Obviously, back in the days when you play two up front, I mean, that is pretty special. I mean, on the face of it, you look at it and go, what is that? It's a, but back then, it was just, it was brilliant to watch. You knew that there were constantly going to be goals. And you obviously, much like in the Tagana season, when we had, you know, that great front line, you know, they were always, it was, we knew we weren't going to be getting nil nil draws under Keegan. Obviously, Bracewell was a different story. Well, we'll come on to the Paul Bracewell season then. Our first in Division One the current championship, having been promoted with Kevin Keegan as manager, wasn't the most exciting. However, the victory against Spurs in the League Cup when we beat them 3-1 in the Worthington Cup, or the League Cup as you want to call it, that really stands out. Jeff scored an absolute belter that day and made Sol Campbell, who at the time was one of the best defenders in the country, look very average in the way that he bullied him. Yeah, and this is... The one goal that, you know, he'll be remembered for a lot of goals, but I think that particular night, it was something particularly special. He showed that given the chance, he could have been premier, premiership quality as it was then. Um, and it was, I think that atmosphere that night was one of the more special ones, you know, pre kind of Europa League era and all that sort of stuff. There was just, it, there was so much of a buzz going round. And even though the season up to then, or you know, season you know, was wasn't, or you know, as exciting as uh, before, it was taking on the Worthington Cup holders for a start, yeah, and making them look bang average. And it was, uh, I just yeah, I just remember that night. I I I you know, being the good middle class boy that I was, uh, came from boarding school, got special dispensations leave, and uh, made it just in time for the game, and uh, it was just. Got uh, just the whole uh, evening was just it. It was incredible, and I think you know that goal really summed up how dominant we were in that game. We had a habit of knocking out Premier League or Premiership teams back then as well. We'd we'd knocked out Southampton out of the League Cup. We'd knocked them out of the FA Cup as well. Maybe that was the the previous that was, season. That was the previous season. Previous season, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Wimbledon as well. Um, Aston Villa. The previous yeah. season, so yeah, you know, we we, we did claim some prem, Premiership scalps at the time, but Spurs was a big one just because um, they were the Worthington Cup holders, as you say, and it was back in the days as well when people actually gave a little bit of a shit about the League Cup as well. I think, yeah, and you know, if you had Championship versus Premier League League Cup games, this you know, at the moment, no one would give a shit. You know, no. it's it's just it's fallen by the wayside, and I think you know the that was kind of the '90s for you, really, as well. Mm. There was there was still the romance in the game, which no, let's not sort of get political or anything like that. But I mean, it's kind of it's lost someone recently, and it's slightly different if you're you know Division Three or yeah, sorry League Two, League One side playing a Premier League team in the FA Cup, maybe. But even then, that seemed like a special game. And I think, you know, the fact it was a London derby, the fact we hadn't played them for however long. Uh, actually, we played them season four, didn't we? And we lost um, 3-1 in the FA Cup. But then sort of, of you know, getting our revenge in that, I guess that sort of added to the occasion as well. But I think just all round back then, having the, the chance to beat and then doing it so dominantly, just, uh, you know, obviously gave Jeff know a big boost as well and uh you know i think just generally for a for a football team who were surging up the leagues it was just it was a you know a great a great time would you say that was your favorite jeff horsfield goal then the Spurs I, I i would say it was my favorite jeff horsfield goal based you know he scored uh so many good goals during his time at fulham and you know it was either that or his first goal because that his first goal was so good as well but he scored so many with like little dinks with the outside of his foot you know you kind of you know we've spoken about this before but he kind of there weren't that many with his head yet there were so many little uh you know delicate little finishes and i think the one 
against Spurs just for me because of the evening, because of the the game and how well we played inside, and that kind of just was the icing on the cake for that one. And so I think yeah, he would that would definitely go down as my favourite uh, Jeff goal. Yeah, he kind of he bent his run, didn't he, to stay on side and yeah. then just as you say, finish with the outside of his boot. It was a it was a cracking finish. I think for me, I've always enjoyed going to Luton. And he scored a couple of You're goals. You're the first person to ever say that. <laughs> well, I've, I've been I've been to Kenilworth Road three times. I didn't go on Boxing Day last season, um, but I went three times um, in in the late nineties, and I I saw Fulham win four one, four nil, and three nil. And it might have been the four one game when Jeff got a brace, um, and it was at a time where literally every every shot that he had just flew into the back of the net. His, his first goal, he um, he's kind of just barged his way through a couple of defenders, cut back inside another one and just really quickly stuck it in right in the bottom corner. And then the next one was quite different. It came at him quite quickly and he's, he's guided it into the top corner. And there was there was all sorts going on that night. Lenny, I remember Lenny Lawrence was managing uh, Luton and... Um, and we were singing Horsefield for England. Then we were singing Lawrence for Chelsea because we were beating them 4-1. <laughs> it was just a really good night. And I also remember, have you ever been to Kenilworth Road? I, no, I haven't, actually. There's this piddly little stand to the left of it's the It's where they all the private boxes, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. we were singing, oh, you're waiting for the bus. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> I've never quite got night. that stand. I mean, obviously, no. they're, they're moving to a new ground relatively soon, I think. But it's looted. There can't be that many people trying to get corporate boxes for a... You don't need a whole stand made of them. <laughs> Just a whole stand of corporate boxes, yeah. Really yeah, it was. So, yeah, so anyway, for me, that was um, that was my my favourite Jeff Horsfield night and those those two goals have, have, have always been a couple of my favourites that he got. He's one of those players who, by the nature of his style, is extremely popular everywhere he's played. He left Fulham in 2000, having scored 31 goals in 74 games because, really, he didn't fit into Jean Tagana's style and he signed for Birmingham City before his path eventually led him to West Brom, where he was a key part of the baggy side in 2005, which became the first team bottom of the Premier League at Christmas to survive the drop. And of course, the horse scored with his first touch of that game, having replaced the injured Jonathan Greening as West Brom went on to win 2-0 against Portsmouth. It's typical of the man, isn't it, that he'd be on the score sheet in a game of such magnitude? Yeah, I mean, as you know, as I said about his Warsaw goal, he'd come in... With expectations, well, actually, no, he didn't come in with expectations. He came in with a uh, almost something against him because of his style beforehand, and he just didn't give a shit. And in this case, he would have known the magnitude of the job, um, you know, that they were coming up against. And I just, uh, you know, he would have just gone on and done the job, so he knew he had to score, and he did. And I think that um, that Portsmouth game, obviously, that was the that was the last game of the season that kept them up, wasn't it? Mm. And <laughs> we, we did our bit by beating Norwich six 0 that day. Yes, and I remember because my um, I had a couple of housemates at uni. One was a Portsmouth fan, one was a West Brom fan. They were both up at the game. I was at the Fulham game. We were messaging each other, and we obviously we were doing the job over Norwich, but because uh, Portsmouth had to lose to send Southampton down all these Portsmouth fans were buying uh, West Brom shirts at the West Brom ground. And they were, having, they, were, they were having a relegation party for Southampton. And I think, you know, when uh, Jeff came on and scored, I think the Portsmouth fans cheered harder than the West Brom fans. Yeah. Yeah. And all, all their fans ended up on the pitch, massive pitch invasion. He yeah. went down in West Brom folklore forever for that, didn't he? It's, it's great, but it's great for a player like that, who is such a nice bloke and he's so mm. down to earth. He is, he is a good footballer. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't strike you as sort of that naturally talented, uh, you know, naturally finesse athletic football mm. these days, but you give him the ball and you know exactly where it's going. You know, he doesn't, he's not one of those that sort of tries to be too clever. He doesn't sort of miss easy goals or anything like that. He does the job that you need him to do. And I think that's why fans love him. He's made a name for himself wherever he's been as well, albeit, you know, whether it's straight away or whether whether it took a little bit of time. But I, I think most most supporters of most clubs where he's played will will have him down as, as like you say, a thoroughly nice bloke and, and a bit of a legend. And of course, now he's the founder of the Jeff Horsfield Foundation, of course, which focuses on homelessness and providing safe housing accommodation for vulnerable adults 
because he felt like he had a debt of gratitude to the local community in the Midlands, proving that he was not only a brilliant footballer, but a brilliant human being too. Yeah, that's, he's, as I said, he just comes across as an incredibly nice guy, down to earth. Obviously, he had his, um, you know, he had his cancer scare as well. And he obviously came out the other end of that. And like for many people who do have something like that, it gives them a new lease of life. And he clearly felt that, you know, he could use his position. You know, it's not, you know, a multi-millionaire footballer, but he probably did well. And he had the opportunity to do something good for the people in a city where he obviously spent a lot of his time. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's definitely the mark of a man uh, who's clearly, um, you know, knows how to make things better for people. So, and just, as you say, just a thoroughly nice bloke. Yeah, nicely put. It always amazes me, actually, with Jeff Horsfield, because he was playing for Fulham when I was... 17 which was it was a great time to be a 16 17 year old watching all of those promotions and being at that age as well because you're just so into it at that age not not that I'm not into it anymore of course I used a fucking podcast for Christ's sake um, <laughs> but, but you know it's just a bit different when you're younger because it just consumes your whole life when you when you yeah. don't necessarily have that much else going on and I was going home and away and I didn't miss a game for about three or four seasons during that time but Jeff Horsfield was only at the club for a couple of seasons he was there for that, obviously, the promotion season under Keegan and then that season under Paul Bracewell when he did okay, but didn't set the Division One uh, alight by any stretch of the imagination. But it always feels to me when I look back and reminisce that he was with the club a little bit longer just because of how the, the impact that he had in that time. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? He came in, he made an impact, and then he left. And we're talking about him now, despite the fact he didn't complete two seasons with the club. And I think, you know, you could look at a lot of players from that era as well and go, they made an impression on us, especially at our age. You know, obviously you're older than me, but uh, Cheers for that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but they were the players that made an impression because it was an era that was exciting. And whilst there may have been a relatively high turnover of them, the ones that came in, given the fact that we were, one of the better teams in the league each time, you know, in those seasons, they came in and, um, you know, maybe sort of overstated it, set the world alight. Um, but they did all make an impression. Uh, you, you wouldn't get that these days because we're not, you know, you have a player that comes in and plays a season, season and a half for us. You know, we're kind of going to be bouncing between the leagues and it's not quite the same feel but then you know at the same time we're older we we do adult things we don't have the quite the same sort of uh, youthful innocence that sort of got excited by that thing so maybe it's different for you know in 20 years time when uh full and focus is still going strong and we have new hosts <laughs> take care of us maybe they'll be talking about um Chihi or whatever his name was that played you know <laughs> <laughs> by which time we'll be far older and far more cynical far wiser are, hosting sort of more serious podcasts about uh, <laughs> yeah. maybe maybe don't even speculate as to what they might be about Christ <laughs> <laughs> um all right well let's rate Jeff's Fulham career out of 10 then as we always do uh I um I think I went uh, in our last chat, I went with uh, seven and a half for Pesh, and I'm actually going to give him seven and a half as well, uh, just because, as you say, he was only there for less than two seasons. He didn't set the world alight in the championship or Division One or whatever it's called, but he just did everything, you know, effectively. And I think maybe it was the style of um, Bracewell's football that probably uh, stopped him from scoring more then. Um, but you know, given. Uh, the fact he was there in such a short time, but made his uh, made his mark. I will give him that seven and a half. Fair enough. I'm going to go a little bit higher. I'm going to go eight and a half just because I absolutely loved him. And he was unplayable at times in that Division Two season. All right. He was, he was only here a, a couple of years, but I, I think that was more to do with the direction that the club went in rather than rather than rather than anything to do with him. I always remember Ian Brown saying about the Stone Roses when um, when they played a gig in a city, they just play one night rather than play a whole host of nights. They just want to get in there, make an impact and get out again. And I feel like that's what Jeff Horsfield did at Fulham. He got in there 
absolutely smashed it for a season. Did okay in the second season, but then just got out. But my memories of him are just absolutely fantastic. I love him. So eight and a half for me. Lovely stuff, mate. All right, thanks for that. Let's pass back to the main show. Fulham. All right, well, we're going to come on to the stats and seeing as we are graced by the presence of Mr. Statistician himself, Stato, we're going to hand over to Stato. It makes sense, doesn't it? So um, I've got my little stat file here and we start by looking at previous results against West Brom. So in total, throughout the whole of history, um, we've won 27 times against West Brom, but they've got 36 wins. However, recent history suggests that this game it's going to be a dead rubber because the last four games we've played against West Brom have all been draws that includes the two draws last season in the championship and also the two draws the last time we played them in the league which was our relegation season back in 2014 during those game, um during that season um we got a I think they were just both new and it was actually there was no goal scores or anything our last home win against West Brom actually came back in September 2012, which was a 3-0 win. Goals from Berbatov and Sidwell. That was just a different time back then. It was, it was a better time, let's be honest. Um, and to be honest, they haven't won at home against us for a long, 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 long time. They beat us in the League Cup back in 2005 at the Cottage. Uh, Junichi Inamoto scored in the 99th minute against us to knock us out. But in the league, they actually haven't beaten us at home since 1967. So that's either a good sign or a bad sign, depending how you look at it. Looking at how, looking at the story of West Brom and how you know they've got here and what kind of their journey's been over the last couple of years, a couple of seasons ago. So obviously they got relegated back in 2017 and 18. They went through the torrid time, going through three managers. They had Tony Pulis, who got sacked and then they made the terrible terrible choice of uh, putting Alan Pardew in charge and yeah that didn't go too well for them he was gone by April and then Darren Moore took over and he actually did really really well in his last few games with them in the Prem they won three they drew two and they lost one which was enough for him to become permanent manager and then obviously he had a season in the championship with them um, you can kind of see the parallels here with him and Parker which was a recurring theme last season because obviously what happened with Darren Moore was that they got rid of him despite the fact they were comfortably in the playoffs and still battling for automatic promotion, but they still went ahead and got rid of him, which, you know, again, last year, that's what a lot of our fans were calling for with Parker, but we stayed put and we ended up going up. So that, that was all good. Ultimately, they fell short in that playoffs. They got knocked out by Villa on penalties. And over the summer, they decided to appoint Slavin Bilic, who, as we all know, he's a very experienced manager did a good job at West Ham, did a great job with the, with the Croatian national team. And he got them after a great start in 2019-20. Um, they didn't lose a game against game week 10, which was against Leeds. And that form continued through the first half of the season. And you know, them and Leeds created a very sizable gap between all the other promotion chasing teams, including us and Brentford. Um, for example, by the time we got around to January 2020, there was a... Uh, nine-point gap between them and third-place Brentford. However, they did start to wobble a bit after the restart and they were picking up a lot of draws whilst other teams like us and Brentford were winning. And as we, we, we all know this anyway, on, by the final day, as Prenchy mentioned, we had an opportunity to get automatically promoted, as did Brentford. Both us and Brentford didn't get the results needed, so they just about got promoted. If we were to have a quick glance at those stats in that promotion year, they actually won more away games than they won home games, which is a bit concerning for the game on Monday. You don't normally skip teams where away form is better than home form, but West Brom were one of them last season. They kept nine clean sheets and seven of those also came in away games, so they're going to be a tough team to break down. And we saw that in the games we played against them last year. We only got a one-all draw at the Cottage and that dire nil-nil draw at the Hawthorns. Um, and they've already kept one clean sheet in the Premier League this season, which, you know, it's not great one in six games, but hey, it's one more than what we have. On average, they scored 1.4 goals per away game and conceded 0.7. Um, this record has obviously gone out the window so far this season in the Premier League, being a newly promoted team. 
um, where they've only scored one goal per away game and have conceded on average a massive 3.5 goals. So, you know, for all what I'm talking about, that's going to be a boring 0-0 or boring draw. It could be some random high-scoring game. And given how the Premier League's going this season, it could be one of those. Um, and so far this season, in the five games that they've played, 67% of the goals that they have conceded have come in the second half, whereas 71% of the goals that they've scored have come in the first half. So it could very much be a case that we go 1-0 down in the first half. But if that's for anything to go by, we can come back and we can get a few goals in the second half for them. So I've kind of merged the new signings that West Brom have made along with all their key players because a lot of their signings were just the loans they had last year turned into permanence. Baldo, is there any player that you want to take a look at and kind of analyse? Yeah, I think the main ones um, who's going to be their main sort of creative force and probably scoring force as well will be Mateus Pereira. It probably stands out as the obvious one, but I think it's probably the most obvious one to, to talk about. Uh, the Brazilian attacking midfielder was on loan at West Brom last season. Uh, so it was a permanent sign that they brought him from Sporting Lisbon. Uh, he's 24 years old and he got eight goals and 16 assists last season in the championship. No player in the league got more assists than him and no other player made more key passes than him. So he's obviously going to be the creative force there. He's already got off to a very good start in the Premier League with one goal and two assists to his name this season. And that goal was an exceptional free kick in their 5-2 loss against Everton. And seeing as I know he's such a fan, I'm going to include this for our boy J-Mac, who's obviously listening in. Uh, Carl and Grant, who, for those who don't know, J-Mac was very, very much in favour of us signing him to be the backup to Alexandra Mitrovic this season. So I figure we may as well give him a shout out. So he was their marquee signing this window. He was signed on the domestic deadline day in a reported £15 million move. Uh, he scored 19 goals and four assists last season for Huddersfield. The season before, he'd actually joined them when they were in the Premier League and only managed to score four goals. Uh, will very much give them an attacking boost that they need. And he got his first goal on Monday against Brighton in, uh, to score the equaliser for them. He can play centrally or wide on the left, but I think he's more likely going to be playing through the centre. So whoever our centre-back partner is, probably Tim Ream and uh, Tosin, yeah, they're going to have a very hard job. Uh, keeping him out of the limelight. I think that would definitely be the case. Looking at their lineup against Brighton, they had Carlin Grant in the middle and Pereira and Dean Garner out wide with Kovinovic behind them. And just to kind of round out that, att that attacking um, quadrant, uh, Dean Garner, it was quite a weird one, really. Um, he had a really good pre-season with West Ham and he had a great year in the Championship last year with West Brom scoring eight goals and six assists. And you would have thought that if he was on loan at West Ham, if he was after having that good successful loan stint at West Brom, West Ham would you know want to integrate him into their first team. But instead, they sold him for fifteen million pounds, I think it was, um, back to West Brom, and it's just a bit of a confusing one because he's he's already got one goal this season for Everton, and he's clearly a very talented player. And what makes it more weird is after selling Dean Garner, they then went and bought Benarama, and it just yeah, a bit of a weird one from West Ham's perspective. But hey ho. Um, and finally, Kravinovic, he joined quite later on in the window. Um, all, it wasn't, they didn't get to sign him on a permanent. They had to re-sign him on, for another loan season from Benfica. Only managed three goals and two assists last year, but he was very key in, in a lot of the build-up to a lot of their goals last, se last season. Um, as mentioned, he's only just returned to the team, so he hasn't featured heavily so far, but did play in the Brighton game on Monday. Other key players, um, they have their captain, Jake Livermore, who's the experienced um, defensive midfielder. Um, he'll be that defensive shield that we'll need to try and break down against um, West Brom. Did score a really bad own goal against Brighton, though. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It was just a bit of a, a, bit of a defensive calamity. So um, at least we're not the only team that has a weird, dodgy defence. So that's a positive thing to look at come the game on Monday. I love it. A positive thing to look at is that West Brom are <laughs> shit at defending as well as us. Yeah, we're not the only ones. Yeah, well, let, let's. That's more than enough on West Brom. Thanks, Stato. Let's let's get the topic of conversation back onto Fulham. Baldo, you and the lads discussed this topic a little bit on the show earlier this week. But Stato, is there any way back for Scott Parker? Should we suffer defeat at home to West Brom on Monday, given the Khan's track record of a panic sacking in the Premier League? Oh, the Cairns do love a panic second, don't they? And I think 
after this game, there's an international break, which you know it always coincides well, and that's when the Khans like to make a change. I'm I'm in the camp that we keep that we keep Parker until the end of the season, even if we get relegated. The, the last two seasons we spent in the Premier League, we've gone through three managers, and that's just—it's just ridiculous. It's stupid. Let's just have a seasonal consistency, even if we do tragically like, awful. Just keep him, and then maybe get rid in the summer if things don't work out. It's just no point changing manager now because, personally, I think well, we're more or less down already, which is a very pessimistic outlook. But the stats are very much against us, so changing managers now is just a bit pointless. Obviously, if we lose against West Brom, it's going to be very difficult for him, for people like me to kind of justify keeping Parker in. And yeah, it feels like if we do lose, that could be curtains. It kind of feels like the Huddersfield game last time around with Slav that we needed to win and didn't, which kind of more or less sealed his fate. And yeah, we just, if we lose, then yeah, that could be the final nail in the coffin for Parker. Yeah, it's, it's a similar time of year to when Slav was sacked, actually. But obviously, we're just a little bit earlier on in the season because of what happened. Um, but you, you can never second-guess the Khans. And, you know, will they think we need to go a little bit earlier this time because it, we'll have more of a chance of staying up? Or or will they just stick? And, yeah, I, I hope they stick. But but who who knows what they're going to do? Uh, just to pick you up, Stato, as well, it's not the international break after this game. It's after the West Ham game the following week. Um, uh, Baldo, it's an extra week I, I, before he gets fired. I know, I know. Another week. Um, Baldo, I think you spoke about that subject enough the other day. So I'm going to ask you a, a slightly different question. Um, Tony Khan himself surely has to wonder how much patience his dad's going to have with him if he continues to fail to deliver a squad worthy of competing in the Premier League. Do you ever see a day when Shahid may kick his own son out? He's a ruthless businessman after all. And if the manager's on borrow time, then surely so should the director of football be after, you know, a catalogue of mistakes. You'd like to think so, but there is just that little part of me that thinks, I think you've mentioned it a couple of times, they basically come as a package deal. And if we don't, we're going to have to, I don't want to say put up with, but I think that's probably the best way to best way to word it. We're going to have to put up with Tony Khan for as long as Shahid Khan owns the club. And yeah, if we're, if we're, if we're being honest, it could just literally, it could be a case of what, you know, he expects us to go down or at this stage and maybe he'll put faith in Tony Khan to get us back up again. You know, you know, to buy the players as he as he's you know he's proven that he can you know build a squad or recruit a squad for the championship. And then, he can do you know, that. He can do that, but he can't take it onto the next level so far. And he's had a couple of goes at it so far. Yeah. So you, it, it is just a case of time. It does it does he give him the you know the January transfer window as you know one last you know your one last chance? Because I do I do agree with you that I think there will be there will come a point where. You know, Shade realizes that you know his son's actions are effectively costing him. I don't know what the, the exact finances would be, but many, many millions of pounds slash dollars to him. So there will come a time where he has to, where he has to think, no, this is this this just isn't working for me. Go make me money elsewhere. With you know, AEW seems to be doing quite well at the moment. Go focus on making me money there rather than you know continually you know messing up. Here. I do, I do think it's coming, but I just don't know when that time is going to be. I think I agree with a lot of that, and you know, I, I don't want to have to point fingers at Tony Khan or Scott Parker or anything, but I just kind of want to point a finger at the club in general. You know, this is the second time we've been promoted, and both times, what's happened is we've disregarded the squad that's got us promoted. We've first time round, we kind of threw Stephanie Johansson and Donald and Bettany, we just threw them out straight away. This time around, we seem to have done that with Hector uh, and Rodak. And we just buy a brand new team and they all come together very late on a bunch of strangers and we just expect them to click and play as a team and get results. On paper, they're a very talented set of players. Loftus-Cheek, Tete. Um, look, they're all great players, but they don't play together. There's, there's no team. That team spirit get, gets ripped away after one season. And, you know, it, you need to look at the club as a whole and look at kind of the strategy that they have going forward. If we want to be a club that wants to be a sustainable Premier League club, the answer is to not get promoted from the championship with one team and then scrap that out, rip that out and start again from the other. And 
you know, there's no one individual that the blame falls on. You can blame Tony Khan for the transfers that we buy in. You can blame Scott Parker for the type of football you play. But overall, it's the club and the the strategy going forward that we have that kind of needs to be more sustainable going forward because what we have at the moment, it's clearly not working. We're on track to go down in an embarrassing fashion yet again and something just needs to change. Well, let's hope that we're jumping the gun a little bit here and that we're having this conversation and that things are going to change. Will it change on Monday night? Let's get your score predictions, lads. Baldo, I'll come to you first. Um, I'm, no, Whether or not this is a result, it probably is a result of bad start to the season, but I'm just not feeling optimistic at all. Even though West Brom are, you know, quote-unquote, fellow strugglers, I just think that the morale at the club, you can you can tell just by the attitude of the players on the pitch. So unless something has drastically changed in training this week, I can't see that picking up. It is just a case of, you know, whether or not West Brom are in the same boat as us. I'm going to go for a 1-1 draw, personally. I, I, just can't see, I just can't see us winning. Yeah, I'm going to echo that as well. I, I, I'm my confidence. I'm, I'm usually the most optimistic one, and I try and try and stay chipper and and be optimistic when when doing these these podcasts. But you know, having watched watched us in, in every game this season on the telly, I just I can't can't see us winning anything at the moment either. And I just have no confidence in our defence and no confidence in in the attack breaking West Brom down. So um, I'm going to say I'm going to be optimistic and, and say we're going to get a point. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll go with one all as well and keep my fingers crossed. Stato, how about you? Oh, I really want to be the positive one here, but I'm kind of the same. Like The best I can see is us getting a point. And I think, to be honest, this could be the first nil-nil we get at the Cottage since 2012, I think it was. So I think clean sheet, the positivity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're, we're going to get a clean sheet, but I can't see us scoring unless Lookman does something special. But at this point, you'd imagine that West Brom have probably seen all of the Games, all the games that we played so far, and they're probably just peg looking as our main man, and they're probably going to man mark him out of the game. So, nil nil is my is optimistic at best for me. I think. All right, mate. Well, lads, thanks for joining me for this one, and thanks to you all for listening at home. J Mac will be back on Tuesday to talk all about the game, and he'll be joined by Don Love and Matt Dom. So be sure to tune in for that. Have a great weekend in the meantime, and chat to you next week. Cheers. <laughs>